want to be a CEO? It's a tough mountain to climb. I'm finding out how to get there and what to do once you make it to the top. I'm Michael Thompson, and this is Three Peaks Leadership with Philip Levinson. Today, we've got a very special guest on the podcast and a very interesting and topical subject to get stuck into. More on that in a moment. But first, I'm joined, as always, by Philip Levinson, CEO, CEO mentor, and the author of Three Peaks Leadership, How to Make It as a CEO and Beyond. Lev, g'day. G'day, Michael. Diversity. It's a, it's a big topic. It's an important topic in, in corporate Australia. And it's arguably become more important in recent years because we haven't been doing it well enough. Things appear to be changing. There, there appears to be momentum in that direction, but it's a topic that we need to talk about and we need to keep talking about it. Now, our guest today is an extremely accomplished individual. Samantha Martin-Williams is a non-executive director of the Newcastle Permanent Building Society, Newcastle Airport, and the Supply Chain and Logistics Association of Australia. She's also on advisory boards for the University of Newcastle and the Salvation Army, and that's just her current positions. Samantha Martin-Williams, welcome to Three Peaks Leadership. Thanks, Michael. Well, Sam, thanks very much and for taking time out of everything that Michael's alluded to uh, and adding to that list of achievements in the fact that you are part of the, the Three Peaks leadership team, if I may. I found that your involvement in the book before it was finished was was critical. I'd been reviewed and one of the feedbacks that I received that really struck a chord was that this book's fine, but really you've come at it from the perspective of, of a 56-year-old fat white man. And that, therefore, you've really narrowed the appeal. And in fact, you've missed the point. And you and I have talked about this in the past. It's really broadening that message and getting guidance from a diversity and inclusion perspective that is, that is so important now as part of a CEO's arsenal. So, uh, if I may, you know, again, uh, this is a topic that you and I have, have delved into, but for the benefit of our, of our listeners, breaking into the boys club, how do you do that? Two, two things, Lev, I think before I try to answer that is one that, um, you know, you demonstrate a lot of um, self-awareness and open-mindedness for some feedback in and around your book. So, so that is a key leadership quality that's particularly important. So the fact that you were able to look into the mirror and, and, and receive that feedback and, and, and think, okay, how am I going to improve this situation, I think is a, a really key example about cliques and, uh, and, and boys clubs and, and just clubs generally at the workplace. So if they exist, I think if you take a step back from that, diverse workplaces are 35% more likely, research indicates, to have higher financial returns than, than businesses that have low diversity. That is in their decision-making. If they have some, some diversity in and around creativity and innovation, it really does impact the, the bottom line. So boys' clubs and clubs have the risk of just having a homogenous group of thinkers and, and people making decisions that often then don't challenge the traditional the traditional views of the business and, and can fall behind what, what consumers are, are really looking for. So it makes good business sense to keep an eye out for homogenous groups and good leaders um, are on the lookout for homogenous groups all the time in the workplace. They are great listeners. 
they remain very inclusive and have a look at where there are opportunities that inclusiveness is becoming a problem. And they are connecting with their people naturally and frequently. So, so these clubs or cliches, they, they, they don't become homogenous groups that start to set your business back, it, that, that they are early identified, they are um, actively responded to, and, 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 and good leaders are always looking to remain inclusive. I think that's a great point. In fact, there's a number of great points that you've made. One is the, the, the reported economic benefit, which I, which I think is a, an extraordinary point. And this, the second one is the need for a leader to be aware of those cliques as they form. And I think the only way of doing that is, and we refer to this in the book and in other podcasts, is, is the captain's walk is when the captain of the ship actually goes for the walk through the ship not formally, informally, just taking the temperature and morale and working out who's up, who's down, who's working at their, their peak performance, who's worthy of having another look at to check in on their, on their well-being and the cliques that form. So you notice in the workplace that the cliques forming. How do you, how do you break that down? I think that you need to be accountable. If, if, if you get a sense, and good leaders, if they're, if they're well connected with their people and they know what motivates their people and what's going on for their people in and outside work, you get a good sense of, of, of something emerging early. I think you don't wait. I think if you wait, if you wait too long um, to try to validate your, your thinking, um, you, you, you're probably going to find that it becomes a bigger problem than you would like it to be. So good leaders not only collect quantitative data, but that qualitative gut feel, and you talk about that in the book, is, is, is a really important characteristic that leaders need to act upon and they need to be accountable. They, they need to demonstrate that they're aware of, of a click, that it's getting a little bit, little bit homogenous, you know, what, what are some options in and around making this group more diverse. They can share that thinking with their trusted circle. They can share that thinking with their team leaders because their team leaders might have some terrific ideas about how they remove that, that, that sort of homogenous look to a particular group or project. So I think they've got to act early, uh, trust their instinct, and, and if they're connecting regularly, frequently and, and deeply with their employees, then I think it, it, it can be nipped in the bud early. Right. Um, if it has emerged and it's become a real, a real problem within the business, something that's a, a, like a long-held a long held group, then I think you need to, to, to think about it slightly differently. Um, I'll give you a really good example of what's happening that I'm viewing at the moment with uh, some of the CEOs of the boards that I'm on. And in the post-COVID environment, it's been a really interesting one to watch because as employees return to the workplace, leaders and, and, and team members, some of them really want to return to the workplace and others would prefer remote working. For, for, for a yes. range of different reasons. So you have CEOs now that are um, managing those that have returned to the workplace and those that have this preference for remote working. What I'm noticing with a couple of the really good CEOs that uh, we're working with at the moment is that even those that are in the office, they tell the staff to jump online. So it's a nice level playing field for everyone and you don't have this 
group that has returned to the office where you have conversations and, 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 and side conversations that those who are remote workers and show a preference for don't get the, don't get the opportunity to, to participate in. So whether you're at the workplace or not, you all jump online, you've got a level playing field and, and the CEO and leader can, can manage that environment and, and keep an eye out for inclusiveness a little bit more naturally, I think, than, than they can if they're in two different sort of two different locations, two different types of platforms face-to-face and online. Yeah, that's an incredible insight and actually a very simple but effective solution. Yeah, and and, and it may may not work for everyone, but I think good CEOs are trying different things as employees return back to the workplace and better understand what their employees are thinking and valuing moving forward. Can I ask a question about almost taking a step back in terms of diversity and, and obviously with the end goal of getting diverse thinking and a range of views in a workplace, because obviously, as we discussed, you're going to have a more productive workplace and just a more effective environment if there are, if there's a range of views rather than everybody agreeing. But what are some of those, what are some of the, the different backgrounds that can contribute to that or the different kind of demographics that contribute to diversity? We're not just talking about gender here. Are we? We're also talking about age, socioeconomic backgrounds as well, class, cultural backgrounds, these kinds of elements that, that having a, a really diverse workplace is actually as almost as simple as just making sure there's a range of people there because they will bring with them a, a variety of views. That's right, Michael. I, I, I think, however, um, rather than thinking about diversity as an add-on, Diversity is as important as strategy, as governance, as finance. It's, it's, it's part of, you know, you've got a diverse customer base. It should be represented across your business and across your board. That is, I think, undisputed. It's, it's the how you get that representation, you know, valued representation and how you include that type of thinking long term so that, you know, diverse creative people that think differently when you ask for feedback and give you different feedback, um, stay with your organisation so you can keep that challenging your business uh, and, and you can keep meeting the market or even be ahead of the market because you've got that diversity in your feedback loop, you've got that diversity in your product sets, you've got that diversity in terms of your decision making. Yeah. I think that was a really interesting point about making the makeup of the the company be representative of the customer base. It makes perfect sense to do that. But are there there any of those kind of demographics or those metrics really that you would measure diversity on that we're doing worse than others on? And I know there's a lot of talk about quotas um, for for female representation on boards, but what about age and and bringing more experience into into workplaces or um, people from different cultural backgrounds or from different classes, perhaps people who didn't have the same kind of university education perhaps. Are are any of those areas where as a society we are doing worse at or better at uh, in in kind of correcting this this diversity imbalance in our our workplaces? I think, Michael, the organisations and the countries that are doing this really well um, see it as as a genuine priority and as a a key business driver. So they get the data right. They, they have a look at in their, in their organisation, um, what is the representation of all different groups across the organisation so that, that they are clear on the data, 
And they are also clear on some of the, the frameworks that might have some unconscious bias built in. That may be, for example, in the recruitment process. It may be in the performance management and reward process. But they have a great propensity to be able to do a deep dive across their business, get the data, validate that data, and then be accountable for putting some metrics in place that shift the dial. So I think that... Whilst it sounds simpler than it is, there are some key factors that make organisations more successful than others, I think, with this diversity piece. I would say things like data, unpacking processes and repacking them with, with others involved in the decision-making process. So get, getting people from diverse backgrounds to unpack processes and, and re-engineer those processes as options including them in how those processes are built back up is a, is a, is a really important small step to include them and, and also to, to build something that's really strong around that diversity piece. As you're talking, looking around the table, when we're all nodding our head in, in violent agreement. I think one of the, the, one of the themes that you keep coming back to, which is terrific, is, is validation actually becoming quantitative about the assessment as well as qualitative. And I think there hasn't been enough of that. So would it be fair to say that it's a mix between the, the qualitative assessment, how what's the mood and morale of the organisation, and the quantitative assessment, which are things like the results of cultural surveys or actually your performance against your peers? Absolutely. Um, things like uh, metrics around how many women have coaches and mentors, both inside and outside the workplace. How many women are doing administrative-based jobs versus doing strategy, governance, finance, you know, related roles. How many women or others from diverse backgrounds are undertaking, you know, negotiation and, and, and arbitration skills so that they're good negotiators when it comes potentially to, you know, reward and recognition. So there, there, there's, a, there's a number of different types of metrics that would be specific to a particular company. I think the openness and the willingness to self-reflect and the accountability to change is, is what good leaders and good boards promote as a tone from the top. Yeah. What kind of message do you think it sends when recently Telstra appointed a, a 32-year-old woman, an entrepreneur, a founder of a business, to be the latest board member for Telstra? It's got to send a pretty positive message about the diversity of the board when that is is someone that 20, 30 years ago probably wouldn't have got a look in. Uh, I mean, I, she's 32 now. She's still I think 23 years younger than the next youngest board member on the Telstra board. That kind of thing must be pretty encouraging and pretty inspiring, I suppose, to other companies around Australia to see a blue chip company like Telstra making an appointment like that to its board. Yeah, Michael, look, I think that um, whilst it's encouraging, um, Telstra would, I imagine, have a a process, a skills-based board, and have recognised that that's a really important skill that they need on their board to reach their current and future customers. So whilst it's in, it's encouraging, I don't think it's unusual to, to take an approach that, you know, is skills-based and is, and is customer-focused. And, you know, that I, I think that appointment is a particularly strong appointment uh, because there would be a number of values 
and and opportunities brought to that board with the addition of, of, of a strong board director like that. So, yeah, I, I'm probably less excited about it. I, I, I think that it just makes good business and, and, and Telstra would have followed a really um, deep and wide process to get the best person on that board. It's interesting. There's a, you know, it's becoming analogous to in the real estate industry to green buildings. We're starting not to talk about green buildings anymore because they're all green. It's becoming an amorphous term. And we're starting, I hope, to get to a point with the whole ESG paradigm that ultimately it won't be mentioned anymore. It'll just be expected. And it'll be inculcated into society that the, the companies that serve society look like society. And, you know, that the rights that are bestowed on, on, on all citizens are demonstrated within their workplaces as well. We're not there yet, which is, which is a shame. What guidance would you give to a 32 year old woman going onto the board of a, of a company, let alone a major public company? Probably three things. There could be more, but three main things. And, and, uh, and I reflect on my own experience when I joined a board and I was the only female on that board um, and certainly the only one that was under 50 at the time. But um, I spent a lot of time understanding the company and the people so that I could both value what has been traditionally working but identify where there were opportunities. So spending a lot of time with key stakeholders in a very interested, active listening way was really important. I think the second thing is to have a close relationship with the chairman, a close professional relationship with the chairman so that you you can um, feel comfortable in um, raising questions that either are different questions, raising questions that might have been raised before in 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 a different way, but talking to the chairman about creating an environment where that is is welcomed and safe and, um, in fact, you know, celebrated in the organisation, talking with them about the, the how, how you do that. And I think the third thing for me was pace. Um, it's, it's the pace and the cadence that you run at the change because sometimes you can identify opportunities for change or um, challenge or guidance and advice to the CEO and the executive team. And they have, they have a range of other things on. Um, they may not have spent as long as you have going over that idea and coming up with the options. So, so getting a good pace around how fast the chair is running, how fast the CEO is running, what are they running at and how you could work together to ensure that you're not outrunning one another or that you're in fact providing some more critical mass by running together Pace is an important concept and calibration to, to keep in the back of your mind always. Well, you're so right. I mean, as you mentioned it, my head cocked a bit because one of the things I was criticised for is outpacing my senior leadership team and my board. I had an idea and I ran with it and I expected everybody to follow follow on, which was a terrible mistake because I, what I hadn't done is communicate why the pace was so urgent and why you, you know we we're running and also taken into consideration the demands, other demands on, on people's time. So good ideas sort of fall foul of or, or fall onto the rocks of indifference because you have, to use your word, you've outpaced the organisation and they're not keeping up with you. And it's not as important to them as it is to you or to the company of the future. 
because they're very focused on on the company of today. So it's a great point. Lev, I actually think there's probably more here than we're going to be able to fit into one episode because I know that we also want to talk about micromanaging, uh, what it is, why it's a problem, uh, what it basically says about you as a leader. So, Samantha Martin-Williams, thank you very much for joining us today. And if you'll come back and speak to us again, we'll continue the conversation on the next episode. Michael, my pleasure. Thank you. That was Samantha Martin-Williams, an experienced non-executive director and chair, a business advisor and former CEO. And that wraps up this episode of Three Peaks Leadership. I know I do say it every time, but make sure you've hit subscribe or follow on your podcast platform so that you get a new episode as soon as it's available. And if you haven't yet picked up your copy of Three Peaks Leadership, How to Make It as a CEO and Beyond, jump on to Booktopia or Dimmix or Amazon or basically anywhere online that sells books uh, to order it today. I'm Michael Thompson, and this is Three Peaks Leadership with Philip Levinson. Philip Levinson.